0: uh, If you have your Bibles with you today, please open up to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's a New Testament book. If you have an electronic device, I will be preaching from the NIV, so you may want to pull that up so we're in sync together and a little easier to follow along. And if you don't have either one of those with you today, don't worry. We're going to have all the scriptures up on the screens for you, so you can follow along that way if you would. I have titled this sermon, A Communion Refresher. Now communion, of course, is something we do pretty much every week on the first. Excuse me, every month on the first Sunday of the month, we gather as a church family to celebrate communion. And by the way, for those of you again online, uh, we are celebrating it today. It's the first Sunday of June, so if you want to collect the elements and have those ready to go, because we're going to transition into communion as soon as the sermon is finished today. I know that we're all aware of communion. But I would, I, would, I would encourage you to ask yourself, what do I really know about communion? Do I know enough about it that I could explain to someone else what takes place when we celebrate communion? Or I could explain to them how we should celebrate communion? What's a proper attitude? I'm going to pose a question for you to start. And I'm not, going to, I'm not looking for an, a verbal answer. Just kind of internalize the answer to yourself. Is it possible to participate in communion in an unworthy manner or in a way that is unacceptable to God? Now let's look to Scripture for that answer. And the verse we're going to look at, a Swiss theologian called Oscar Kuhlman, he has suggested that this verse we're going to look at is the most ignored verse in the New And that verse is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Paul is writing here and he says, So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So this verse here implies that, yes, we can participate in an unworthy manner. And if we do, we, as it says, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Verse 29 takes it a step further. 1 Corinthians 11 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This indicates that not only can we celebrate in an unworthy manner, but it's a serious offense to do so. Now you may recognize those two verses. They come from a passage that is normally shared here when we celebrate communion. But I wonder how much of this passage we see when we celebrate communion, we actually understand. I think you can already see why it's important to understand what takes place during communion and what our approach should be. And if you stay with me, everyone here and those of you watching online can understand what communion is really all about and how to participate in it in a God-honoring way. And we're going to clarify that here in just a second after I change out to the other mic, and then we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing upon this time now. We ask that you would help us all to just focus our attention into you and that you would use our spirits and our hearts and our minds to really take in all that you want us to learn from this passage we're going to look at today. We thank you that we have this opportunity to come together to study your word that contain all the truths in the whole universe. And it's so reliable for us to look into and to study and to learn from. So thank you for blessing your word. Thank you for providing it. Thank you for protecting us, protecting it rather, and keeping it pure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, i put together a simple outline to kind of prepare you for what's coming up in the sermon. And it's just, it's it's very straightforward, but I'll give you a few hooks where you can kind of hang some ideas to kind of work your way through this with me. Uh, What we're going to see today in this passage is we're going to see a rebuke. We're going to see a reminder. We're going to see a remedy. We're going to see a reprimand. We're going to see a refresher. And then hopefully we will see a response to this morning's teaching. Now let me get you to the text. And again, you're used to hearing part of this, what I'm going to read, but we're going to add some verses before it, we're going to add some verses after it to kind of help us with context and with understanding as to what is being taught here. So again, we're at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm beginning at 17, and then we're going to skip to verse 20. Paul is writing to the believers at Corinth, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Again, skip to verse 20. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Verse 31, But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Nevertheless, When we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And he ends with this, and when I come, I will give further directions. Okay, now there's a lot of verses here. I understand that, but I think what you're going to see is that most of them are straightforward and we should get, this, get through this very quickly. It should move right along. Let me give you a little bit of background just before we start breaking down the individual verses. And this is probably good advice to think of whenever you're reading something from either 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. It's good to keep this in the back of your mind. Corinth was a fairly large city and it was a hub of commerce and trade. It was heavily influenced by the Greek culture. There were at least 12 different Greek temples, including one dedicated to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who was thought to be the goddess of love. And in her temple, religious prostitution occurred. In the name of religion, there was prostitution. Corinth was so widely known for its immorality that the Greek verb, verb to Corinthianize came to be accepted and understood to mean to practice sexual immorality. Now, because of the location in because of its location in this immoral city, the Corinthian church was plagued with numerous problems. And we're going to take a look at one of those today. We're going to see how they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Now, throughout this message, you're going to hear me Refer to it as the Lord's Supper, uh, the Lord's Table, Communion. They're all interchangeable. They all mean the same thing. So don't get, don't get hung up on any of that. They're all the same. The first part of this outline we're going to see is a rebuke. Now back to verse 17. We're going to start tearing it down a little bit. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Now we're in chapter 11, verse 17 As recently as chapter 11, verse 2, just 15 verses ago, Paul had been praising them for holding to the traditions and his teachings, but not here with communion. Their meetings did more harm than good. Now we're going to skip to verse 20 again. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. What they considered the Lord's Supper that they were participating in was unrecognizable to Paul. They had defiled it that much. A little bit more background here, too. We learn from history that originally the early church held what were called love feasts or agape feasts. And it was a time where the church would get together to celebrate God's love and to celebrate the love they had for one another. If you, probably the best way to understand it is think of a church wide potluck that ended with the Lord's Supper. That's what the love feasts were originally. And originally it was a great thing. It was a great time of fellowship, coming together, of bonding together, of of friendship, of getting to know one another. And in addition to that, it was a great opportunity from a practical standpoint to feed the poor among them. The rich people that could afford to bring big dinners and large things and so on, Would help to take care of those that could not afford to bring anything at all. And these, we don't, we don't learn a lot about the uh, love feasts here in the Bible. They're alluded to in 2 Peter 2:13, but they are specifically mentioned in Jude 12, where Jude said that these people, referring to false teachers, are blemishes at your love feast. So again, they did take place. They're alluded to in the Bible. They're actually listed here in the Bible. But we didn't learn a lot about them. But that is the idea behind them. Now, going on with verse 21. For when you are eating, some of you, stop there, it seems to be a little bit more pervasive than just some of you. The some of you is the current translation from the NIV. Their original translation of this verse was each of you. And when I looked at most of the other modern translations out there today, most of them look or list each of you, as a way to understand this. So this was a very pervasive issue. For when you were eating, some or each of you, you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So these love feasts uh, had devolved to the point where the rich weren't waiting to share. They were actually arriving early at the love feast. They were eating up all of their food. And by the time the poor would arrive, there was nothing left for the poor to eat. And they went without. And that's not how Christians should be te- treating one another. Imagine the, uh, imagine the disappointment. If you were one of those that were underprivileged, as we say today, and you, weren't, you didn't have enough money to, to feed yourself on a regular basis, um, you might think, it seems to indicate they did these love feasts almost every day. So this could be the only meal that the poor, among the, the Corinthian believers, the only chance they had to eat. And you can imagine their disappointment. They might have been walking there to get to the probably a rich man's house that was large enough to hold everybody. And they had been walking there, making their way to that house, and thinking, oh boy, I'm so hungry. I'm feeling hunger pangs. My stomach's growling. I haven't had a thing to eat all day. But at least I'm going to have this one meal tonight. And then you can almost picture them as they're walking. And, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Judy's going to make that pistachio dessert that she makes and is well known for. You know, maybe we'll get that. Maybe, uh, maybe Misty's going to make that avocado dip that she makes. Maybe we'll have that. Maybe Dick and Dorothy will provide their cranberry salad that they make every year for our Thanksgiving celebrations here at Momentum. So you can see the anticipation of getting this meal, getting a chance to eat. They're coming together with the church, and there's nothing left for them to eat. Some had even turned this into a drunken, gluttonous affair. So this, you're getting the picture. This had nothing to do with the original intention of these love feasts slash the Lord's table. Paul is calling them out here, and he continues his rebuke. Look at verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? In other words, if you're going to create a problem, stay home. Don't even go. Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Are you doing this intentionally so you can humiliate the poor? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this area, in this matter. Now, be, you may be asking yourself, so well why is Paul so upset? Maybe, maybe they didn't know or understand what the Lord's table represented or how it was supposed to be celebrated. Nope. You can't fall back on that. Look at this next verse. First part of verse 23. For I received from the Lord, and stop there for just a minute. Anytime Paul gets into some kind of a little bit of a controversial teaching, he reminds them where he gets his authority. You'll remember I mentioned this, I think, three weeks ago when I was preaching that. After Paul's conversion, Jesus met with him specifically after Jesus' death. But he met with him specifically and he trained him up in the Scriptures and in doctrine. And he got his teaching right from Jesus. So he says, for I received from the Lord. Folks, this has authority with it, so pay attention. I received from the Lord, get this, what I also passed on to you. Look at the tense of that verse. Passed. Is past tense. He had already taught this to them. He had already showed them what they were supposed to be doing with this communion celebration, this Lord's table, and they had either forgotten, or they had either gotten to the point where they just didn't care. They're going to do it their way. Now we see where Paul comes through and he gives them a reminder. And by the way, uh, most conservative scholars and theologians think that 1 Corinthians was written before the four Gospels. If that is true, this is the first written account or written record of the Last Supper. What took place in the upper room when Jesus transformed Passover over to the Lord's table. So the second half of verse 23. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed took bread. We're going to stop there. I feel Paul is hitting them between the eyes with this. Your so-called Lord's Supper is not about Him, but you. You're more concerned with your needs, with your concerns, with your wants. You've completely changed the emphasis of what this celebration is supposed to be. It's supposed to be all about what He's done for us. Do you remember... The night he was betrayed, how it led to his arrest, to the beatings, to the scourgings, to the false trials, to the public humiliation, to his crucifixion and death. Do you remember that? You should be focused on these things, not partying. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Paul continues his reminder in verse 24. Now we're not going to skip over breaking this down, but we're going to wait till a little later in the sermon to go back and cover these verses here. So Paul is going to show us what I'll call the warning in verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we're going to stop there. This is the verse we started with today. What does it mean to participate in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? It's very important that we understand this correctly. First off, communion is not for unbelievers, and that includes unbelieving children. It's only to be celebrated by those with a personal relationship with Jesus. You have to personally know the one to whom communion honors and understand what he's done for us. Uh, With that in mind, there's a term we don't hear much anymore, but Years ago, it's called Fencing the Lord's Table. And the idea behind it was, you may, I don't know how often anybody runs into this anymore, but you may remember from years ago that depending upon which church you attended, they limited who could participate in communion. And they did that by what was called Fencing the Lord's Table. The idea wasn't to be exclusive It wasn't to say, no, 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 you're not good enough or whatever. It was to protect the person who didn't know Christ in a very real and personal way. It was to protect them from coming under judgment, from participating in the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way. Okay, other ways that lead to an unworthy manner of celebrating the Lord's table. Not understanding what the sacrament is all about participating in it ritualistically without engaging minds and hearts, going through the motions, treating it lightly rather than seriously, coming to the Lord's table with a spirit of bitterness or hatred toward another believer, coming with unrepented sin. Any of these conditions would be considered partaking in an unworthy manner. On we go with the rest of verse 22nd. 27 Rather, we'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. When we participate and partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, we become guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And I want to read a quote from you from John MacArthur. He explains this so well To come unworthily to the Lord's table is to become guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. To trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, but to dishonor the country it represents. To come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony, it dishonors the one in whose honor it is celebrated. We become guilty of dishonoring his body and blood, which represents his total gracious life and work for us, his suffering and death on our behalf. We become guilty of mocking and treating with indifference the very person of Jesus Christ, unquote. Much like those that were around the cross that mocked Jesus as He hung there and bled and died. We need to be careful of that. We want to make sure we're not doing that same kind of thing. Now, as alarming as it is, and we definitely need to make sure we're not doing communion in an unworthy way, thankfully, through Paul's writing, God provides a remedy for prevent, preventing this issue from happening. So first we saw a rebuke. Then we saw Paul's reminder. Now we're going to see a remedy. In verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. We'll stop there. In order to avoid eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we need to prepare ourselves spiritually spiritually for communion by examining ourselves beforehand. And this word here for examine, it has the idea of a rigorous self-examination. Not just a cursory look, not a surfacy look, but a rigorous self-examination. Sorry these come so close together, but I had to include this quote from John MacArthur too. Again, he's he's right on. Quote, Before we partake of communion, we are to give ourselves a thorough self-examination looking honestly at our hearts for anything that should not be there and sifting out all evil. Our motives, our attitudes toward the Lord and His Word, toward His people, and toward the communion service itself should all come under private scrutiny before the Lord. The table thus becomes a special place for the purifying of the church. That is a vital use of communion, and Paul's warning reinforces that ideal. Unquote. Look at verse 29 if you would. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. In other words, for those who don't utilize the remedy that's provided, the pre-communion rigorous self-examination and participate without proper understanding or preparation, they then bring judgment upon themselves. Now, the word judgment here, krima, it has the idea of a disciplining or a chastisement. It's not talking about eternal judgment. It's not talking about condemnation or damnation, which is to come on the unbeliever. But it's the idea of a way that God may discipline his children. And as a response to this judgment that many Corinthian believers brought upon themselves, we see a reprimand from God here in verse 30. So the rebuke, a reminder, a remedy. Now we see a reprimand, verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a first century figure of speech for death. There were three ways that God may discipline. We saw them here. They could become weak, they become sick, Some had even died. And you may be reminded of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5. When they got caught lying to the Holy Spirit, God took them out. They died too. Same kind of thing. This verse here shows us that God is serious about how His children approach communion. And we should be too. Verse 31. But if we were more discerning, With regard to ourselves, we would not come under judgment. If we use the remedy provided, the rigorous self-examination of ourselves to discern where our hearts, attitudes, motives, and understandings are compared to where they should be, and then confess anything that needs to be confessed, with this proper preparation, we can then participate in communion in a God-honoring way And without fear of coming under judgment. Maybe you skip a verse, go to verse 33, if you would. So then, my brothers and sisters, and Paul is wrapping this up here. When you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Wait for one another, just like you did when when we started, or when these were started rather. Wait for one another. The rich people with all the food don't go on ahead. Be considerate. Be loving of the other people in the congregation. You should all eat together. And anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. If you're not going to be able to make it, if your attitude is going to be awful because you're too hungry, eat a snack or eat something at home before you go to these gatherings so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And then Paul ends this with saying, And when I come, I will give further directions. I think the implication here is that there's other issues he hasn't dealt with, but he's handled the worst of these now, and he is planning a visit to go to Corinth, and at that point he'll pick up the rest of the stuff he hasn't covered. So so far we've seen the rebuke, a rebuke, a reminder, a remedy, a reprimand, and now we're going to see a refresher. and specifically, a refresher on communion or a communion refresher, hence the name of the sermon today. We're going to take time to dig into this so we really understand what communion is all about, because we need to understand it. Now, what I've done is I've, I've created a tool that I think will help us a lot with this. I've taken the four sections in the Bible, Matthew 26. Mark 14, Luke 22, and here where we're at in 1 Corinthians, those are the four records of what took place in the Last Supper, again, when Jesus transformed the Passover feast into the Lord's table. I took those four passages and I kind of overlaid them on top of each other. There's a lot of repetition, and it's a little cumbersome going back between four books trying to compare them all. But I put them all together. It was very carefully that I did it. Lay them on top of each other, and everything they provide information-wise on what took place in that upper room is going to be in these verses we're going to look at here coming up. As with, oh, by the way, don't don't be alarmed that there are four different views, if you will, of communion. There there aren't any contradictions. Let me start by saying that there are no contradictions. Just keep in mind that. uh, the, the four passages are aimed at four different audiences. They were written by four different authors who all have a different writing style. So a word that's different here or there is not a big deal. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage. It, and I can, can kind of explain that by some were led by the Spirit to include more information. Some were led by the Spirit to include less. But there is no controversy here. Okay. So let's break this down. Uh, And as we do this, here's a good rule of thumb. Anytime you're studying the Bible, two things we want to look for. We want to look for what was the author trying to say and what did it mean to the original hearers. And if we don't do that, we can very easily miss out on some significant understanding as I'm going to point out to you today. If we tried to look at this passage Only through our Western eyes from 2022, we would miss out on a lot of what's being taught here. So that's what we're going to try to do here. Okay, here we go. While they were eating, we're going to stop there. Again, they're eating the Passover feast. It's important we point that out. If you go back to those passages and you look at the verses leading up to it and some of the verses that come behind, it's very clear that they were indeed celebrating the Passover feast. There's no doubt. While they were eating, the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, this is the night before His crucifixion, He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Stop there. The only reason He broke it was because it came in a large, flat piece. It was unleavened bread, and it came in a large loaf, but it was flat. And all you would do typically is you break off a piece for yourself and you pass it to the next person And it works its way around the table or wherever you're at. And uh, that's why he broke it. it. Gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples. Now, so far, there's been nothing out of the ordinary. So far, this is lined up exactly with what was prescribed for celebrating the Passover feast. But here's where it starts to get interesting. Saying, take and eat... This is, we'll stop there. The word is here has been misunderstood over the centuries. It's the word in Greek called estin, and it means to be or represents. Jesus is not saying that this bread is my literal body, but that it represents my body. He's not saying that this cup is my literal blood but it is a representation of my blood. So it's important to hang on to that. Take and eat. This is, here's where it would be shocking. And this is how we would miss this. If we tried to read it just through our eyes, this would be shocking. Here, take this. This is my body. Now to us, it doesn't sound like, okay, we're used to our celebration. But here's what I don't want you to miss for 1476 years the Jews had been uh, the, the unleavened bread rather had always represented leaving egypt in haste to the Jews jesus is saying that from now on the bread will represent the giving of his body for us he transformed the passover celebration into the lord's supper which is a memorial celebration that looks back to Jesus is saving us from the consequences of sin. And you can understand, it took a lot of authority to do that. Remember, Passover was older than the keeping the Sabbath command, it goes way back to their time in Egypt. Been around for all these years, and he all of a sudden is changing it. And if you were a Jew celebrating one of his apostles or the other, few disciples or maybe the women that were with them there in the upper room that night. This would have been a shocking statement. He's changing it. Wait a minute. That's not right. That's not what we've done our whole lives. So that's the my part of it. Now that second word there, body. This is something else that's easy for us to miss. Listen to this. To the Jewish mind, body was not just a reference to the physical body. It represented the whole person. In Jesus' case, his teaching, his ministry, and his work. All he was, all he did. Here it symbolized uh, Jesus' entire incarnation from birth to resurrection. And it's easy for us to miss that, again, if we're just using our eyes. Which is given. Understand that his life was not taken from him. He gave it up willingly. Which is given for you. Now, if you've been following along on the verses up there, is there anything that anyone's noticed that isn't up there that you think maybe should be up there? Anybody pick up on that at all? I didn't think anybody would, but wasn't quite sure. What you don't see in this passage here is the word broken. You've heard it before, but it's not it shouldn't be there. It comes from an unfortunate translation of 1 Corinthians 11.24 in the King James. It does not appear in the best manuscripts and um, most of the modern reliable translations. Jesus was tremendously beaten and tortured to the point where he was almost unrecognizable. But as Psalm 34.20 had prophesied and to which the Apostle John verified When he quoted it in the 19th chapter of his Gospel, verse 36, not one of his bones will be broken. And they weren't. John tells us that very clearly. Okay, now this part is also key. Focus in on this. This do this in remembrance of me. It's not just remembering his death. It means to recall everything about him. Last quote, I promise from John MacArthur, but the concept of remembering to the Hebrew mind meant more than simply recalling something that happened in the past. It meant recapturing as much of the reality and significance of a person or situation as possible in one's conscious mind. Jesus was requesting that Christians ponder the meaning of his life and death on their behalf. Unquote. And this idea, as I was working through this, it it kind of struck me that I wonder if this wasn't what went on on the uh, the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended uh, after his earthly ministry, ascended into heaven through the clouds. The apostles were there and some of the other disciples and some of the women. They were there to witness that. He went up into the clouds, into heaven, and then he kind of disappeared. And the two angels dressed in white showed up next to him and says, what are you looking at? I almost wonder if on their way back to Jerusalem, this is what went on. Boy, it's been a heck of a three and a half years, hasn't it? Do you remember everything he's taught us? Remember those times he put the Pharisees in their place? Remember the miracles he performed? Remember what he looked like when we, well, three of you, saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration? I think that's kind of, kind of what, what the idea here is in re- doing something in remembrance of someone. And this would be similar to us remembering a deceased loved one at the holidays. And I'm not sure if anybody here has lost someone recently or even a long time ago. But Thanksgiving comes and that chair that they used to sit in is empty. They're not there anymore. But you don't focus just about the fact that they're not there. That recalls the memories and the ideas of, yeah, remember how he used to really like those mashed potatoes and he'd always eat a lot of them or you start remembering all about all things about the life, about that person's life. I think that's the idea here. I've been doing that a lot recently with my mom. Um, when I think about my mom now, it's been, I think on Tuesday, it'll be a year and a half since I lost my mom. But when I think about her, it's not, I don't think about the time she died. That comes up every now and then. But most of the time I'm remembering times together with my mom, the way she took great care of us, the, the things she liked, the things she didn't like, You do this, you do that. That's the whole idea here: is just remembering the whole person. Okay, on we go. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. Now, this would have been the third cup of the Passover celebration. It's called the cup of blessing. And it would have contained either red wine or red grape juice. If it was wine, it would have been diluted or cut with three to four parts of water so that no one would become drunk on such an important occasion. And as I wrote that out, I was thinking about the Corinthians. They could have used that strategy and prevented a lot of problems with what they had done to the Lord's Supper. <laughs> and then he gave thanks. Stop there again. Greek here is either Eucharisteo or eucharistein. I'm not sure, but it means the Eucharist. Some of you that may have come out of a Catholic background, you'll remember that sometimes I think the Catholic Church refers to the Lord's Table or communion as the Eucharist. That's where it comes from. Just to give thanks is what it means. And offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. Communion is offered to all believers. Everyone, as long as they're true believers. This cup is or represents, here we go again, the new covenant. And by the way, that last portion of our Bible, like a third of the whole Bible, we call it the New Testament. I don't know if you knew this or not, but that means New Covenant. The New Testament means New Covenant. And the New Testament is a record of Jesus establishing this New Covenant and what it means toward the forgiveness of sins for the believers. Same thing with Old Testament. Old Testament means Old Covenant. A reference to the Mosaic Covenant that was given through Moses To the Israelites, in my blood, or this is my blood of the covenant, Jesus is saying this cup of red grape juice or wine will from now on represent my blood, which I willingly shed in this new covenant on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins. The focus is no longer on the blood of animals, which at best was a temporary appeasement. Now, listen to this, which is poured out for you. This is where it gets very, very personal. For whom did Jesus die on the cross? For you. For Scott. For Dick. For Ava. For Tim. For Kathy. All of us. All of us. He died for us. And that is very personally, personal. And why did He willingly shed His blood? For the forgiveness of sins. The shedding of blood was required for the forgiveness of sins. I didn't have time to look it up, but I think the passage is in Hebrews 9, maybe verse 22, something like that. Shedding of blood was required for the forgiveness of sins. None of the sacrificial animals of the Old Covenant could take it away. Only the blood of Jesus could do that. So as Israel looked back to Passover to remember God's deliverance from bondage in Egypt, we look back to the Lord's Supper and remember Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, delivering us from the consequences of sin. So we're given very simple instructions as far as how we celebrate communion. All he says is, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. There's two directives there. We do it, and when we do it, we do it in remembrance of him. That's it. It's interesting to contrast the uh, the Passover feast and the Lord's table. Ken did a nice job last week of laying out some of the things involved with the Passover feast. Every aspect of that was defined, what it had to be, right down to the letter. We get to the Lord's table. Do this and do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, when you celebrate communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the reality of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins to one another and also to the world around us. And this verse seems to indicate that Christians should be doing this until he returns. We should be celebrating communion until he comes back. And then it ends with this. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And here we get just a little tiny glimpse of a future celebration in heaven called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Some of the translations have the wedding supper, the wedding feast, but you get the idea. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus, the Lamb of God, is united with his bride, the church. And that would be us. And they all drank from it. Okay, as I draw this teaching to a close, let me summarize what's taking place when we celebrate communion. This can be grouped into three different time frame standpoints. First off, from the past, we look back and remember Not just the scene in the upper room when Jesus established the Lord's table. And not just his death, although that's definitely part of it. But we remember Jesus' entire life and ministry and everything he stood for. We remember his life with the bread and his sacrificial death and resurrection with the cup. From a present standpoint, we are acknowledging again our belief in Jesus and his work and we refresh our commitment to Him. We are communing with Jesus and experiencing His spiritual, real presence. He is here. We are associating ourselves with the Christian church. We are proclaiming the gospel and Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins to fellow believers and the world around us. And then lastly, from a future standpoint, I just read this, we look forward to Jesus' return and a future celebration in heaven called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb where Jesus, the Lamb of God, is united with his bride, the church. Now finally, what do we do with all this information? I've been praying about it as I've been pulling this together. And I've been praying that we will see a response. And that's the last item on the outline. We saw a rebuke. We saw a reminder, a remedy, a reprimand. We took a whole refresher course on communion. But now we're looking for a response. None of this teaching will matter a bit, not one iota, if we don't respond to what we've learned. We're going to get an opportunity to respond in just a few minutes as we celebrate communion. Now, don't let that make you tense. I don't want you thinking, oh, I should have taken better notes or I should have paid more attention. No, I'm going to talk you through it step by step. So don't be worrying about it. But church, I think I think if we love Jesus, if we love God, I would think we would want to do this in a way that honors Him. I would think we'd be compelled to understand and respond in a way that's acceptable to Him. I would think we would want to make Him happy, make Him pleased with the way we celebrate communion. We've taken a detailed look at communion. Perhaps God has shown us how our approach to communion may have been lacking. My prayer is that as we partake of communion, we will all have an accurate understanding and a renewed appreciation for its meaning and its significance. And we will participate in a God-honoring way. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank You for the truths contained in Your Word. We thank You that how Your Holy Spirit helps us to understand them and gives us the ability to take them to the point where we actually respond to them. Thank You, Lord, that uh, you've, You've provided this celebration, this memorial celebration for us as an entire body to look back to the time that Your Son willingly gave up Himself on the cross. And that through His sacrificial death, He provides forgiveness of sins for all of those who believe in Him thankful, Lord, that You are here with us during the communion celebration. We're thankful that Your real presence can be felt. We ask now, Lord, as we enter into this celebration, that You would speak to us clearly as we examine ourselves. Show us if there's any areas in us that we need to repent from to confess to You. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray. Amen.